0: Well, as I've mentioned already, if you're a visitor guest, so great to be with you as we continue on in our series that we've entitled Simply Christmas. The Christmas story is really the story of God giving us his word. First his verbal word in the form of a promise and then his incarnate word in the form of his son and uh, baby Jesus Christ. We all have a history of people giving us their word. Promises made to us. And sometimes that's been a good experience, right? I mean, think about promises that have been made to you where people made that promise and they followed through on that promise and that was a good thing. But we also know that not all those experiences end up that way. In fact, when I was a very little boy, I assumed that if somebody... Gave you their word, if they gave you their promise that they would be good for their word. But you live through a few broken promises and all of a sudden a promise isn't good enough. So in my little circle of friends, I don't know if it worked like this for you, but as a kid, if you said to me or in my little circle, hey, I promise you that if we wanted to know if you were really serious, we didn't want to know just if you promised it. We wanted to know, did you pinky promise it? Anybody know what a pinky promise is, right? It's like, all right, I don't want to just hear a promise. I want a pinky promise. Now, what even was that? Like, are we really thinking that the other person is thinking, well, listen, um, I was going to break my promise, but now that you made me latch pinkies, I guess I will follow through on my word. So there was a promise, there was a pinky promise, and then again, just my little circle of friends, though I think probably some other little circles of boys had this as well. We had the highest form of a promise guarantee, which was a spit shake right you spit on your hand and you shake right i mean you have to be really serious about your word if you're going to spit on your hand and mingle your spit with a spit shake right so we had all sorts of defenses built up because we knew that a promise a promise might not be good enough to be trusted maybe it was that they changed their mind maybe they made a promise that they just didn't have the power to deliver upon. We grow up and we become adults and our pinky promises and spit shakes are just called by different words like prenuptials and contracts filled with fine print. Verizon promises if you come to their store that they'll give you a free iPhone. You go to the store and you say, I would like my free iPhone. And what do they say? They say, well, that's, I mean, that's what we promised in the advertisement, but that's not what we meant. you got to read the fine print. When we said free, what we meant by free was $1,000 paid over time with lots of extra fees attached. The good news of Christmas is that God is not like Verizon. He is who he says he is. He will do what he promises to do. No fine print, no pinky promise, no spit shake needed. We're going to consider that. But before we do, let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your word. That even from the very beginning, when sin entered into the world, that you made a promise that sin would not have the last word. And that you would not give up on your dream and intention for us. So as we come to your word now, would you speak to us? Lord, I pray for those who maybe sense that they're far from you. Would you draw them near? Lord, for those who feel near to you, would you not let us become complacent? Lord, we need to hear from you. So we gather for you to speak through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab your bulletin. Hopefully you got on the way in. If you flip it open, you'll see the teaching notes that are there that you can use to follow along together. And then the scriptures are there as well that we will be digging into throughout our time together. God understands that people make promises and don't always follow through on those promises. And that we can get so used to broken promises in a relationship that we can then allow our relationship with God to pick up the taint of the broken promises that we've experienced. In fact, speaking of Jesus coming in the manger in Luke chapter 1, It says this, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. That word there, visited, in the Greek is "episkepito." Skepto is where we get our word skeptic from. Epi is a prefix that means to move towards something with helpful intent. And so when it says that God visited his people, what it's saying is, hey, I know that you're a little skeptical about me, so I'm going to move towards you through the birth of Jesus Christ in the manger. I'm going to move towards you with helpful intent. So we're going to look at the story of the experience of the wise men on the very first Christmas to help melt our walls of suspicion that we can so naturally pick up in life and then we can allow that to kind of bleed into our understanding of what God is like. So I want to just draw three things that I think is going to help us from the story of the wise men at Christmas. The first thing is this, is that God's unconditional promises always come to pass. There are two types of promises in Scripture. There are the unconditional promises and the conditional promises. A conditional promise is basically when God would say, well, if you do this, then I will do that. So you have to hold up your end of the bargain. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, God is not obligated to come through on his end of the bargain because it's a conditional Promise, But Christmas is actually filled with a whole bunch of unconditional promises of God. And that's where God is saying, I am going to do this no matter what you do. So you actually don't even have a part to play in this because I'm going to do something. And the only thing your part is, is to see it, behold it, pay attention to it, and then respond to it. But I'm going to do this. It's an unconditional promise. Christmas proves that no matter how long the odds, no matter how dark the night, no matter how bleak the scene, God will deliver on his unconditional promises. The story of the wise men begins in chapter 2 of Matthew verse 1. It says this, it's written there for you, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some magi from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Well, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as, when, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now he's disturbed because he's the king in the area, and now he's hearing the arrival of a new king. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for that is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Now the complexity of the different parts of God's promises, the different parts of God's word, the different parts of God's plan coming together here in this moment, it is dazzling to behold and I believe your faith will be built if you can see it. 1400 years before this moment, God promised that a star would accompany the birth of the Messiah. In Numbers chapter 24 verse 17, they say, the prophet said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. 1,400 years before that moment, that occurred. 750 years before this moment, God promised about the birth of the Messiah that wise men would be drawn to the Messiah's light. We pick this up in Isaiah chapter 60, it says this, See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and wise men to the brightness of your dawn. 700 years before this moment, the prophet Micah made the promise that the Messiah would be born in this little village known as Bethlehem. 600 years before this moment, the people of Israel were taken captive, interestingly, to the lands that were east of them, thereby allowing the wise men of those nations to the east to know some of God's promises, including to look for a star signifying the birth of the king of the Jews. Anywhere from a month to maybe up to two years before this moment, God co-ops the plans of an evil politician, Caesar Augustus, and his decree to have a census to move Joseph, Joseph and Mary to the town of Bethlehem to ensure that God's promise of the child to be born in Bethlehem would be fulfilled. Now, in the story of Christmas, I've always wondered, why didn't God just say To Joseph and Mary, hey listen, one of my prophets said that the baby would be born in Bethlehem, so I need you to go to Bethlehem to have the baby. I mean, if you're going to have an angel show up anyways to Mary and Joseph, you might as well put that little footnote in there. Why didn't they just say that? I think the reasoning why is God is saying, I can use anyone and anything to fulfill my purposes, because When I, God, make an unconditional promise, when I give my word, there is nothing and there is no one that can stop my promise from being fulfilled. I only gave you a few of the unconditional promises that were made throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there are over 48, somewhere between 48 and 64, depending on what you count as a major promise made by God in the Old Testament concerning the historical facts of where and how the Messiah would be born. There was a statistician a number of years ago who calculated what the odds of these 48 major prophecies all being fulfilled in one person, what would the odds be that they would all be fulfilled just by chance? Because they were all fulfilled in the birth of Christ. It is a number that is so large, there is actually no word for it in the English language. Now, let me put this in perspective for you. The number of atoms in the observable universe is the number one with 80 zeros after it. So that's, that's the number of atoms in the observable known universe. That's the number right there, okay? Okay. The odds of the events of Christmas uh, and the the fulfillment of these 48 major prophecies happening purely by chance are a number with a one, not with 80 zeros, because that would just be the known number of atoms in the universe, but a one with 484 zeros after it. That's what that number looks like. In other words, what this means is that imagine a universe that's five and a half times the size of our current universe and imagine that you were blindfolded and told you get one shot to go and pick one particular atom out of all of the atoms out of this universe that's five and a half times the size of the universe that we live in and the chance of you picking that one particular atom by chance is the same chance That all of these 48 major prophecies were fulfilled simply by chance in Jesus' birth. If you say, well, I, I just think it all happened by luck. I think it all happened by chance. You, my friend, actually have more faith and chance and luck than I have in a God who orders the universe. At Christmas, God is saying, when I give you my unconditional promise, it'll come to pass, just as I said it would, no matter how long the odds. In fact, I'll stack the odds against me so that whenever it comes to pass, you'll know that I have come as the episkepito. I've come towards the skeptics to give you what you need to believe that I will do what I say I will do and I will come through on my unconditional promises. No matter how long the odds, no fine print, pinky promises, or spit shakes needed for that to happen. The second thing we see from this story is this. Is that just because we are waiting doesn't mean God is not working. You feel like you have an area in your life like, God, where I'm waiting. What are you doing? Are you doing anything? Do you see me, God? God had made several dozen unconditional promises about a coming Messiah, but then God went silent. In fact, for 400 years, immediately prior to the birth of Christ, there were no more promises, there were no more prophets. 400 years. Think about that for a moment. That is older than the the age of our country. 400 years. Years, People lived and died with no additional promises. And so as that began to happen, people began to think, see, he's abandoned us. I mean, look, all those promises, I mean, that was back then, but this is now. Times have changed. That's not really what God meant anyways. How can we know that God's word is even relevant today? That's what they began to say. See, when you become suspicious of God's word, you are inviting Darkness to envelop you. And here's the problem. If you sit in the dark long enough, your eyes adjust to the dark and you become comfortable navigating dark places. You begin to think that you were designed to live in the dark. That your soul was designed to experience darkness. That your world was designed to be a place of darkness. And the worst part is that you can become so deceived that we can think that we have the light when in fact we don't. You can tell when this is happening, whenever people begin to celebrate sin as a good and positive thing. When you begin to celebrate sin and you call it good and positive, that is whenever what you think is light is actually darkness. Jesus actually addressed this himself. He said it this way, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep then your darkness actually is. So, then how can we know if we or those that we love are living in the dark? Thankfully, we don't have to guess. Isaiah says this Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict God's word are completely in the dark. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark, dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. See, when you start contradicting God's Word, no matter how enlightened you think you are, you actually are walking into greater darkness as you do that. Even if you claim to be in the light. Now, if the story ended there, it'd be a pretty depressing story. I think we could all agree, right? But Isaiah goes on and says this, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. And there will be a time in the future... When Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Another way to translate that word glory is light. The people walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For a child is born to us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and we will be, and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Now, no matter what party politically you affiliate with, isn't it good news to know that the government will rest on Jesus' shoulders rather than the fallen attempts of political leaders? God promised that time of darkness would not go on forever. And that promise was fulfilled on the first Christmas. Maybe you're in your own season of silence where you feel like God used to speak and used to feel so near. But now, just like there was 400 years of silence, maybe you're in four years of silence or four months of silence or a couple dozen decades of silence, whatever it might be. God has spoken to you in the past, he's given you some promises, but now it feels like he's gone silent and you can't see anything. What do you do when those seasons come into your life where it feels like God has gone silent? Well, I would say that you look at Christmas. All the promises fulfilled in dazzling complexity just when some thought that God's word was not relevant anymore. You rely on what you know of God's character. And... If you don't know God's character, then when God gets silent and things get hard, you will stop following Him and you will revert back to your old suspicion and your old skepticism. But Christmas is God's way of reminding us, even in our own personal times of silence from God, that I am who I say I am. I will do what I say I will do. My timeline might not be your timeline, but do not worry. Yes, you might go through times where I seem distant and I seem silent, but keep trusting in my promises. Look, if you only trust in the parts of God's word and the parts of God's plan that you can understand, then your faith is not in God. Your faith is in yourself. If you say, well, I'm only going to trust in the parts of God's word that I can completely understand and completely explain to somebody then really what you're trusting in is your ability to reason. And yet we stand humbly before Christmas where God, the infinite one, took on the fragile vulnerability of a baby. There's mystery here. There's wonder here. And we stand in awe of it. God's promises flow from God's character, and God's character does not change. If you are a season in a season of waiting right now, be encouraged. Just because you're waiting for God to come through doesn't mean that God is not at work at this very moment silently to do just that. The third thing we see from the wise man's story is this what God promises is up to him. But what you do with God's promises is up to you. Let's bring it back to the second half of the story of the wise men. In verse 7 of Matthew chapter 2, it says this, Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. When he told them, uh, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went on their way, and a star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now when it was time for them to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. They're given this interview with the most powerful politician in the land at the time, and he says, go and make a careful search for the child. The irony here is quite sharp. Let me put it as a question to you. How far out of your way are you willing to go to obey God's word? How far are you willing to go out of your way to obey what God has said? The wise men have been willing to cross a desert. The priests aren't willing to cross the street. When you think about our nativity scenes, think about who's there, the wise men, but also think about who's missing, who could have been there. The priests and the religious leaders. Bethlehem is the same distance from Jerusalem as Eagle Rock is from Pasadena. Imagine this, if I said, the Messiah is to be born in Pasadena. And we are like, I don't know. I mean, that seems like such a far way to go to see the Savior of the world. I mean, if he was born at Target, maybe I would have gone there. I could have picked up a few gifts along the way if he was born at Target. But honestly, that even seems like a far way to walk these days. So I just don't know. I mean, I just don't know if I'll do that. See, what the story of the wise men shows us is that sometimes the people who start out farthest from God end up being closest to Him. Sometimes the people that everybody thinks there's no way that that person is going to actually ever have God transform their life, they're the ones that actually go the most out of their way in order to meet and obey God's Word. And sometimes the people that everyone thinks that are closest to God, you know, like the pastors, they end up saying, nah, I, I mean, I know He's to be born in Bethlehem, but I'd rather watch Netflix reruns tonight. I don't want to go across the street to see this prophecy and make a careful search for the child. There's good news here for those of you who are seeking God. If you genuinely want to search to find Christ, you will find Him. These magi, they they found Christ despite the grueling journey they went on. They found him despite the apathy of others around them. They didn't let that apathy stop them from making a careful search for the child. Think about it. The, The priests and the religious leaders could have been right there with the shepherds, could have been right there with the wise men. They could have been there with all the lowing animals, whatever that means. They could have been right there with them, but they're missing from the scene. They knew God's word but they wouldn't live by God's word and so they missed out when God's word came to visit them and notice the wise men not only went out of their way to obey God's word on the way to God's word in the manger but God's word came to them and said don't return to Herod in other words they chose to obey God's word rather than Herod's word For the wise men, the word that they were obeying the most in this story from start to finish was God's word. And whenever the political leaders gave a word, hey, come back so that I too might come and worship him. And God comes through the angel and says, no, actually, I want you to go a different way. They obeyed God's word rather than the cultural and political words of the influencers of their day. See, when our culture's word tells you one thing and God's word tells you the opposite, whose word gets the last word in your life? How far out of the way will you go to obey God's word in your life this Christmas? You see, what God promises is up to Him, but what we do with God's promises is up to us. Christmas always reminds me of this curious story of an author of Dorothy L. Sayers. True story. She was renowned as a writer, best known for her mystery novels and short stories. She was also one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. And if you've never heard of her, never read any of her uh, work, her most famous character was an English aristocrat and an amateur sleuth named named, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey. And throughout her novels, that she had written a series of these novels, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey solves all sorts of mysteries as he goes through these uh, different journeys. But about halfway through Sarah's series of novels, the single Peter is introduced to a female character by the name of Harriet Vane. And what's curious about Harriet Vane is that she's a writer of detective fiction who also in the detective fiction she's writing, happens to be one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. After she and Peter meet and solve a couple mysteries together, they fall in love and they live happily ever after. And many people have looked at that and they have said that it seems as if Dorothy L. Sayers looked into the world that she had created and looked at the man that she had created and she fell in love with him. Though he was the hero in her story, she saw his loneliness and felt like he needed someone to save him. She wanted him to know love, and she loved him, so she wrote herself into the story, into the world that she had created. Christmas is when the author of the story makes good on his promise to write himself into the story. Why? Why would he do that? Because he looked into the world that he had created, which now had become distorted, fallen, and disfigured by our suspicion over whether God actually exists or is good or can be trusted. He wrote himself into the story to save us from our suspicion, from our sin, to save us from the skepticism that if God is... In existence, he's distant, he can't be trusted, he can't be known, and he certainly isn't loving. He wrote himself into the story so that we could see him fulfill all of his unconditional promises, so that we might have a basis to trust him on all of the conditional promises that he offers us. By his goodness. He wrote himself into the story on that very first Christmas so that we could trust all of his promises that are yet to be fulfilled in the future. In fact, as God's word tells us, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Will you pray with me? as we're just kind of have a space of prayer, I want you to hear some of God's promises to you this Christmas. In three different groups, and maybe you'll find yourself in one of these groups, or maybe even all of them. The first group would be this. You know that you're far from God, but you want to be close to Him. God's Word promises You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's exactly what we see with the story of the wise men. They start out farthest from God geographically with the least amount of knowledge about God's promises. And yet they're the ones that end up closest to him by the time the story unfolds. Maybe for you, you could just say, God, I I know I'm far from you. I know it. I feel it. I sense it. The things I've done, the things I've said and thought, but God, I'm seeking you. And I want to do it with all of my heart. Teach me how to seek you and find you with all of my heart. Now, the wise men, they had to set aside time and effort to seek Christ, but they did so trusting that God would lead them. And that's what happened. And it can happen to you too. If you trust God's promise, that if you seek him with all of your heart, you will find him, it can happen to you. God with us was decided at the first Christmas, but us with God can only be decided one life at a time. Maybe for some here, you need to make the decision to give your life to Christ. You just need to say, God, I see now that my skepticism, my suspicion, my apathy has kept me from you, and I want to give you my whole heart, my whole life, and I want to stand on your promise to teach me how to seek you with my whole life, with all my mind, my heart, my will, my strength, and I want to find you, and I want to be found by you. I want to be included in your picture for me. If you prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're praying it coming back to Christ. Would you speak to me? Let me know that. Maybe speak to Marvin. Maybe speak to one of the other pastors. We'd love to just get a Bible in your hand and encourage you. The second group would be this. Some of you, you feel like this. You're, you're sick and tired, but you're also sick and tired of being sick and tired. You're weary. And in your weariness, might you hear the good news of this promise from Jesus. Come to me all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. What does it feel like to have a soul at rest? For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. What heavy burden are you carrying that Christ doesn't want you to carry anymore? That he's inviting you to lay down and surrender to his providential and compassionate and comforting care. Will you let him teach you how to live in a way of consistent surrender where you can find his promised rest for your soul? Come to me, he says. Maybe you just pray now and you say, God, I'm coming to you. I'm weary and I'm carrying heavy burdens, but I don't want to leave this place the same way that I came in, so I'm giving them to you. And teach me how to take on that humble and gentle and light yoke. And he'll do it. And the third group would be this. For some of you, you find yourself facing all sorts of complex circumstances this Christmas, and you wonder if God sees you, and you wonder if God, as it worked for your, is at work for your good in the midst of it all, and God's word comes to you in this promise. From Romans that says and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose when we look at the dazzling complexity of everything that God put together in order for the wise men to come and stand before the baby Jesus fulfilling all of those promises. That's what we see with the wise men. What we see is that God was at work hundreds, even thousands of years before they were even born to bring together all the ingredients that would lead them to know and worship Christ. And when they saw where all of the work of God that even was at work on their behalf before they even came into existence, when they saw where all of the work of God had led them, they were filled with joy, we read. And they fell down and they worshipped Him, offering their very best gifts to Him. Be encouraged. If you love God, be encouraged this Christmas. Be strengthened, be comforted, knowing that He is at work in all that you are facing. And when it's all said and done, you will say, wow, now I see your work. And it's good, just like you are. And just like you promised to be. And I see now in those seasons of silence, when I was waiting, that doesn't mean you weren't working in all things for my good. So be encouraged. The God who is for you, made good on his promise to show up at Christmas just as he said he would. And the God who showed up that way, has promised that he will work in all things for your good, as you love him and are called according to his purpose. No pinky promise, no spit shake needed, for this is God's word to us. Amen.